Days ago, we learned that there were, we've been learning, I should say, over the course of many weeks, there's several types of groups in the Corinthian church, but we learned a couple of weeks ago that there were really another two types of groups in the Corinthian church, and, and these two groups were quarreling over Christian liberty, Christian freedom, and um, there was a more knowledgeable group, and it was okay with eating foods sacrifice to idols and those things, it saw that that was perfectly doable within their liberty. They recognized that idols were nothing. There's no substance. There's no deity. There's nothing there. So they just ate the meat and stuff like it was normal meat. So you had that particular group of people, and then you had what we've been calling a less knowledgeable group. They had trouble with those things and other expressions of Christian freedom and ultimately because that group lacked knowledge, that group didn't have a proper theology of, of idols and Christian liberty and those sorts of things. And I think it's because they were probably new to the faith and had left behind all that pagan religion and the last thing they wanted to do was even come close to it. And so, um, and that's kind of typical of the newer believer. But bottom line is the quarreling began between these two types of Christians in this church when the less knowledgeable group kind of confronted the more knowledgeable group, said, hey, what are you doing? You can't eat these sorts of things. They were devoted to Apollos or to Diana or some other god. You know, what are you doing? And so they came and had these accusations and these concerns. And then the more knowledgeable group said, you should just, you know, basically be quiet because we have the liberty to do these things. These things are nothing. They're not real gods. It's meat is meat, you know. And so they're battling over these freedoms. And Paul addresses both groups because both groups were at fault. Uh, but he really focuses on the more knowledgeable group, pointing out how it had sinned by violating the consciences of the weaker, less knowledgeable brothers and sisters. Like he he kind of rebukes them, and it's a loving rebuke. It's not a harsh, cruel rebuke, but he rebukes them for not being sensitive, for not taking into consideration their newness to the faith, and, and for not being willing to sacrifice some of those liberties, like the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, they, they, they weren't willing to lay those things aside for the benefit of those weaker brothers and sisters. So Paul pretty much lets them have it pretty good. Ultimately, he gets them because they had failed to uh, love others, which is the second greatest commandment, right? Matthew 22, 39. And he also exhorted that both groups, but really the more knowledgeable group, to be ready and willing to sacrifice those rights for the benefit of weaker believers anytime, any place. And so that was 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In the next section, Paul provides a sacrificial example for all of the Corinthians, the more knowledgeable, the less knowledgeable, he provides an example, like he's just talked about sacrificing and what you ought to do. Now he's going to give them an example of what that might look like. And he uses his own life to teach them, the Corinthians and all Christians throughout all time, that there is another highly important cause that we as Christians should be ready and willing to sacrifice our rights for. There's, there's something combined with the, the benefit of other brothers and sisters because that was kind of the first reason to sacrifice. But there's something that's right there with that, if not maybe even slightly above that. So there's another reason to be ready and willing to do this. And so this is what chapter 9 deals with. And I'd like for you guys, if you could, be so kind as to take your Bibles and turn there. 1 Corinthians 9 
Lord willing, I say, this will be a three-point sermon spread out over the course of probably three weeks because I always bite off more than I can chew. And then after writing for a couple days, I realized there is no way this little church is going to sit through hours and hours of one sermon. You guys have like a one-hour max. So, and, and that's great because most churches have a 15-minute to 30-minute max. So, uh, so I've taken this sermon and I've divided it probably into three parts. And we'll look at the first part today, the first point today, focusing on verses 1 to 12a. And I think we should pray again and ask for God's help as we enter into this time of study. Lord, um, I know that I myself am dull in the mind and dull of hearing, dull of thought and dull of application. And so, Lord, I pray that you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you illuminate me today, empower me today to not just preach this message, but to hear it even coming from me, so to speak, so that I can apply it. I need to be the first person that, you know, I'm not just the preacher here. I'm supposed to be the first one to apply these things. And so help me with that. Help me to to, to, to listen to even what you're saying, even through me, as weird as that sounds, I need to hear this message again. I need to read this message again. I need to apply this message. And so do the rest of us. And so, Lord, we're not going to be able to do anything like that without the Holy Spirit. And so we, we pray that the Holy Spirit prevails upon our hearts and our minds and our dullness today, that he instructs us from your word, that he applies these truths from your word, that he empowers us to live out these truths from your word. And so teach us about sacrifice and these sorts of things today and um, help us to understand the text and to live it out. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pick up where we left off on March 5th. That's the last time we were in this series. Our first point, this will be the only point for today. Uh, the first thing that Paul does as he shifts into giving this example in chapter 9 is that he reminds the Corinthians or them of his rights as an apostle, as a preacher, as a planter of the Corinthian church. And this is exactly what we see, of course, with much detail in verses 1 to 12a. So... He starts off his entire argument by listing out, by expositing, by describing, and by reminding to them his own rights. Why does he do that? Because they were talking about their rights. I have rights as a Christian. I can eat meat sacrificed to idols. I can have a cold beer. I can smoke a stogie. I can do these sorts of things. Of course, those weren't their examples. Those would probably be our examples. But they had all these rights, and so now he's kind of <laughs> returning fire, so to speak, and saying, you got rights, so do I. So that's exactly what's going on here. Let's pick it up in verses 1 to 2. Listen to what he says. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? He says, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So there's verses 1 and 2. And what verse 1 does, what Paul does in verse 1 is he opens with four rhetorical questions, all of which expect an affirmative answer, a yes, right? So he opens with this series of rhetoricals. They don't have to literally answer them, but if they did, they should be in the yes, in the affirmative. What are they again? Was Paul free like them? 
He's a Christian man. He's been saved by the Lord. He's not under the penalty of the law. He's not even under the law anymore. Was he free to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Was he free to live his life the way that Christ called him to live, not under any bondage or anything under the law? Absolutely. First question, yes. Am I free? Yes. Answer, yes, he is free. Second question, was Paul an apostle? What's the answer? Yes, of course. Had Paul seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, and he's talking about physically here. He had physically seen the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Keep in mind, this is years after Jesus ascended. And by the way, this is requisite for an apostle. In order for a man to be called and appointed as an apostle, they had to meet and know Jesus face to face. You didn't just know him spiritually through the spirit in you. You had, to, you had to have a physical encounter with him. So what does that say about the quote-unquote so-called apostles of our day? None of them have had a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus Christ, even if they claim to have. So you had to know Jesus face-to-face. -face. You had to have a literal, physical encounter with the Lord Jesus not just know him spiritually. And we know that this happened initially to Paul on the Damascus Road, Acts 9, 1 to 9, right? That's where he met Jesus right there. And what was the outcome of his encounter with Jesus? Three days of blindness. Who today who claims to be an apostle, they say they've seen Jesus? Did they come out of that blind for a season? No, they didn't. They've always had their sight. So, this happened to Paul on the Damascus Road, and I think that Paul had more interaction when he was up in Arabia with Jesus face to face. I think Jesus discipled and shepherded and trained Paul for apostolic ministry himself during like that 11 to 14 year period where he's off the grid. Also with Judas Iscariot's replacement, Matthias, he was appointed as an apostle, right? Uh, it was between him and another guy, and he was the one chosen when they cast lots in Acts 1. And he actually knew Jesus physically. He toured with Jesus. He toured the whole, you know, all throughout all of Israel as Jesus did ministry. He was, in fact, with Jesus physically from Jesus' baptism. He may have been a disciple of, of John the Baptist and then transitioned over to Jesus, but he had known Jesus physically from the baptism of Jesus all the way to the ascension of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, 21 to 26. So, those two apostles, Paul and Matthias, that were added to the apostleship later, both knew Jesus physically. And that is probably one of the biggest requisites or requirements to be an apostle. You had to have known him face to face, and you had to actually receive your commissioning from him. He had to appoint you as an apostle, not, you know, a couple of elders at a church. He did that. And we know that the apostolic era ended with John the Apostle. He was the oldest living apostle, spent kind of the remainder of his days on Patmos as a slave prisoner. And then I think he got free from there, but didn't live much longer. Uh, so he was kind of the, the last of the apostles. That's the done deal. So what you have today are not actual apostles. Uh, I'm going to say this with kindness and love in my heart, but they're really nothing more than imposters and, and charlatans. And what they're looking to do is take advantage of undiscerning, biblically illiterate people. And it's, it, it doesn't 
make me angry per se, maybe a little bit toward them, a little righteous indignation, but it makes me very, very sad for those types out there who may even love Jesus, but who don't know the word, who are sort of spiritually gullible and get sucked into supporting these guys who are clearly only about lining their pockets. It's very, very tragic. It's very sad. And it's something that's worth praying for big time and fervently. Just bring that up as a side note because, you know, there's apostles all over the world today. <laughs> it's like, really? Didn't know that. Fourthly, the fourth rhetorical he asks and answers, what, or he doesn't really answer it, but we know the answer. Was the Corinthian church Paul's workmanship in the Lord? Absolutely it was. He preached the gospel in Corinth. He's the one that toured through that whole area and preached the gospel and planted all of those churches, especially the Corinthian church, all of this work being done not through his strength, through his influence, through his words per se, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's apostolic credentials rested on the twin pillars of his personal witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And bottom line, the existence of the Corinthian church, which was Paul's work and the seal of his apostleship in the Lord. So really what Paul's doing is right up front, he's establishing, he's establishing who he is the rights that he's entitled to as a planter, as an apostle, and these sorts of things. Now, some theologians think and say that Paul was seeking to reestablish his apostolic credentials right here in these first couple of verses because his authority as an apostle was yet again under attack. Now, this may be true, but I don't think it's the point. I don't think it's what he was after here. Like it's, he even says in the next line or so, he says in defense or in my defense. But I don't think what he's doing initially here is defending his apostleship. It was under attack in Corinth at the church of Corinth several times. And this is mostly mentioned in the second epistle. But I don't think that's what he's after here. I don't think he's saying, look, I'm an apostle. You know, that's not the point. Not according to the context. What he was actually doing here is using his credentials and accomplishments to illustrate that he, like the Corinthians, was also free, but even more so because of his apostolic position. All he's saying is he's listing who he is and some of the things that he's done in his position as an apostle just, just to paint a picture of, of his access to the same freedoms and liberties. And as an apostle, probably more liberties and freedoms that he would have over the average Joe Christian. So that's what he's doing. He's using who he is and his position to justify an argument that's coming in the next section in 12b all the way through 23. He's saying, I, am I free like you? Yeah. Am I an apostle? Yeah. Is your church my workmanship through the Lord? Yeah. Did I know Jesus face to face? Yes. What is he saying? Guess what? I have rights too. And by the way, they're paquito, a little bit higher than your rights. My rights are greater than your rights. That's what he's saying here. Um, I, I think that you can kind of think of it from business terms. In the business realm, who has the greater freedom, the employee or the employer? If you work at Home Depot, the employee. 
Okay, I did that, and the managers are bound by all kinds of stuff. The employees run around dating everyone. It's just nuts. They have total freedom. Too much so. I, I loved being an employee there, but when I graduated to management, it was terrible. I'm not trying to smear Home Depot. It's just the way their structure works. Sometimes when you go into management, it's not as fun or fulfilling as, you know, and plus it's 25 cents an hour more. So now you got all this responsibility. One of my biggest gripes was my schedule. When I became a manager, I had to work three in the afternoon to midnight every day. Okay? That is a curse likened to that of Eden. That's a horrible schedule. But normally speaking, when you're talking business, who has the greater freedoms and rights? The owner, the managers, the employer, right? The employer always has the greater freedom. The boss does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And sometimes it drives the employees crazy, especially when they're slaving over a hot stove. I think this is what Paul is striking at here. He's not calling himself the manager. He's not calling himself the owner of the Corinthian church. But because he's an apostle and he's the planter, he, he's kind of at a different level. He should be seen differently and his freedoms should be broader than that of regular Christians. He was the apostle and the church planter. Think of it like this. Therefore, his freedoms would have been, in a sense, greater. Of course, the Corinthians were saying, we are Christians. We are free to eat whatever we want. Paul is now saying, very well, you're right. You do have rights. That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. As a church planting apostle, I have freedom to. In fact, it's higher than yours. That's what he's saying. He's even being a bit sarcastic here, maybe a little facetious. Now we have to ask the question, why is he saying these things? Because it looks like boasting. It looks like pride. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Right? If I say those things, you guys say, man, he's got a really big head. Somebody deflate him. Why, why is he saying these things? Was he boasting? No, no, no. He's not boasting. He's not puffing himself up. He's not, you know, beating his chest in front of these, you know, these meager Christians. That's not at all what he's doing. He's simply setting the stage for what he says in 12b to 23. He has to build upon who he is and his rights so that he can get to that other point and now shift in a completely different direction and blow the Corinthians' minds. That's what he's aiming to do. In verse 2, Paul reasons that if Christians in other places doubted his apostolic authority, his accomplishments, his level of freedom... This should never, ever, ever be the case in the Corinthian church because he planted the church, has an intimate relationship with these believers, and so on and so forth, right? If there were other Christians from other places there that, you know, I don't know about Paul, I don't think he's all that great, you know, or that he's actually an apostle or anything, nobody in the Corinthian church could make these arguments. They knew firsthand who this guy was, and that's kind of what he says in verse 2. If I'm not recognized in this position anywhere else, I must be among you at least, bare minimum. Maybe at Galatia and Philippi and, you know, all the other places where he planted churches. The very existence of this church, the Corinthian church, as messy as it was, its very existence authenticated Paul's position and his high level of rights. Just the fact that the church was there did that alone. Now we move to verses 3 to 7. Now he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? 
Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who feeds a flock without getting some of the milk? Interesting series of statements. There's more rhetorical questions here. Uh, the Greek word order in verse 3 suggests that the demonstrative pronoun this, because you see it right there at the beginning in verse 3, this, it kind of points forward rather than backward. Okay, so when he says, here's my defense, he's not talking about I'm defending myself as an apostle like he said in the previous two verses. He's basically building a defense for what he's saying now and for what he's going to say in the next section. He was not defending his apostleship. What he's actually building a defense for is his testimony in verses 12b to 23. Now in verses 4, 5, and 7, he describes how he and Barnabas and the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, which probably refers to James, the half-brother of Jesus and the pastor of the Jerusalem church, as well as Cephas, which is Peter, what is he saying? All me, Barnabas, and all those guys and all those leaders and those apostles and those Christian ministers, all of us have liberties or rights. That's what he's saying. The leadership of the church, essentially, we have liberties too. We ha you have a right to do what you want. We have the right to do what we want. They had, and he kind of lists it out, right? Uh, speaking of himself and Barnabas and the other leadership, they had the right to eat and drink whatever they wanted. Meat sacrificed to idols, hey, it's on the menu for the Christian because meat sacrificed to idols, tri-tip sacrificed to idols, we're going to have some tonight, by the way, is tri-tip, <laughs> right? Prime rib sacrificed to an idol is prime rib. It's not idol prime rib. It's just meat. So they had the right to eat whatever they wanted just as the... Corinthians did, as every apostle did, they had the right to believe uh, to bring their believing wives with them when they went out and did missions work or whatever. Some of the apostles did this, and Paul is saying, me and Barnabas have the right to do that. Uh, they all had the right to be paid by the church as vocational ministries or ministers, just as soldiers get paid to soldier, just as farmers get paid to farm, just as shepherds get paid to shepherd their flocks right? See the lists of vocations there? You got the soldiers, you got the farmers, and you've got the shepherds. All of them draw from their vocation. They draw income or a living from their vocation. And Paul is essentially saying, all of us, including me and Barnabas, have these rights as well. These are our rights. And some of the leaders that Paul mentions here in the text actually exercised all of the rights that he listed there. They journeyed with their wives with the expectation of being supported by all the churches they visited. Cephas was one of them. Cephas had a wife. Peter had a wife. Did you know that, that he had a wife? He actually had a wife. He was married. I don't know how she stood up to him or dealt with him because he was pretty impetuous. Maybe my wife's thinking, I don't know how I deal with you. Uh, but he was kind of a hard man like me, I guess. Maybe like me and Jared, because the reason why we have trouble sometimes is because we're identical. <laughs> when I deal with Jared, I'm dealing with me. And I found out that when I don't like Jared, I hate me. <laughs> Jared would feel the same way, but I love Jared and he loves me. But 
Peter was a hard man, but he had a wife. And history tells us that when he was executed for his faith, his wife was executed with him. He was crucified upside down. She was crucified right side up. And she was crucified before him, so he got to watch her die. Mm, that's terrible. I would say just spare her. Trust me. She's going to argue with you on the way to the cross. It's not worth your time. Just kill me, you know? So they, some of these guys brought believing wives with them. Peter did that. Uh, and they did that with the expectation that when they went to churches, that the churches would meet their needs. They would be sheltered. They would be fed. They would walk away with a few shekels in their bag. The churches would pay them for their ministries. Now, the interesting thing is, according to verse 6, Paul and Barnabas, Paul says here that he and Barnabas, they did not exercise the right to draw regular pay from the church, nor did they refrain from working normal jobs. Isn't that an interesting point in verse 6? And I, I know Paul wasn't married, so he didn't bring along a belonging wife, but if he had been married or got married, he would have been able to do it like Peter and others. Nothing said about Barnabas's marital status, but he did not travel with a wife. But if he had one, he could have. Or if he got married, he could have. But these guys right here in verse 6, they, they were unlike the other apostles and leaders in the church in regard to pay. It was not their normal practice to show up and to preach the gospel and to hang out for a month or so and to draw a salary. They kept working normal vocational jobs during the ministries. Even Barnabas did that. Now, it is true that on occasion Paul did accept material provision from the church. You can read about that in, oh, I think Philippians 4, 10 to 20. Uh, but his normal, regular practice was to work as a tent maker to support himself so that he would not burden the churches. Like when he went to a church or when he planted a church, he didn't want to just draw a salary from it when it was struggling to get started. And so he didn't want to burden the churches, so he earned his own income. And so did Barnabas. Acts 18, 3, 2 Corinthians 11, 9. Uh, Warren Wiersbe wrote, he, was a, he has some good commentaries on, on the New Testament. He says, the other apostles did not work to support themselves because they gave themselves completely to the ministry of the word. However, both Paul and Barnabas labored with their own hands, listen to this, to support not only themselves so they could eat while they were traveling and ministering, but also they worked so that they could support the men who labored beside them. So these guys worked as a tent maker. I don't know what Barnabas did. Maybe he was the same, but they worked a normal job the whole time they did ministry to not only put food in their own bellies, to not only create for themselves their own shelter and to get their own clothing and the needs that they had, but they did it even for Titus and Silas and Timothy and anyone who toured with them. These guys were, it would be like, you know, Dustin and I working in partnership and Dustin is holding a job while we're out doing ministry and, and he's feeding me and, hey, I got you some new Nikes so you can run even faster from the persecutors, you know, or whatever, right? I mean, literally, it would be like me working with Jared and Jared meeting my needs. This is what Paul and Barnabas did. They worked hard. Can you imagine guys being involved at this level of involvement in the ministry and then also working a job? How do you do that? Um, I did it for the first couple of years here, and it was really, really hard. 
but I didn't expect the church to give me a salary. We just started. How do you do that? You know, and, and these guys had churches that were established and the Ephesian church was wealthy and the Philippian church was broke, but the most generous. And, but they, they, just, they just did not want to burden these churches with any sort of monetary draw. And they made their own way and paid for their own traveling and their own supplies and did it for the men that even labored with them. That is, that is admirable. That is beautiful. You know, bivocational ministry where a pastor works a job and then works for the church and draws income from both or maybe just income from the outside work, it really is a beautiful thing. I did it for years. I still do it to a degree, although I have a much better salary these days because our church is more mature, not spiritually per se, but it's just been around for a long time and it's, it's wealthier than it was at first. And it's, it's a beautiful grace of God. But there's a beauty in, in working in the secular realm, which is sacred according to Calvin and according to God, because all work is sacred when it's done unto the glory of God. But there's a beauty in, in having a foot in that where you draw income and you're interacting with the world around you and unbelievers, and then you're also working for the church. There's a beauty in that. And I think Paul cherished that above just working for the church and just having an income from the church. And he is vastly different from the other apostles at this point, because they all they all just got paid by the church. So this kind of sets him apart in a unique way from the other apostles. He did take some gifts here and there, but he was also in the business of taking those gifts and giving them to the Jerusalem church. He actually went around all the churches and raised supply and monetary stuff and material possession for the most impoverished church of all, which was the church in Jerusalem. Paul did that. He didn't keep it for himself. He gave it away. So very, very unique. Now, it did lead to problems, though, for Paul. It did create a negative persona for him, a negative reputation for him. What he did was noble and good and right, and he believed he was guided by the Spirit to do it that way, but that's not the way others perceived it. Some in the Corinthian church expected Paul to conform to the pattern of the traveling philosophers. Remember, that was a big industry in Corinth. That was a big industry in the Roman Empire, anything that was Greco-Roman. And so you had these traveling rhetoricians and philosophers and, and speakers that would go all over. They were like circuit preachers. They weren't preaching the word, but they were preaching their philosophies and the stoicism and all this. But they got paid. They were very, very good communicators, and they got paid to communicate. It, you would, it would be kind of like in the church today how you have some preachers that are very, very talented and all that, and maybe you would pay them to come preach at your church because maybe they pastor somewhere else and, you know, they've got to fly over here and all that. Well, you had that kind of going on in the first century, especially with the traveling philosophers. Since those professionals and since some Christian ministers accepted monetization, they felt that Paul's rejection of monetization made him unprofessional and subpar because he refused to exercise the right of monetization that in the eyes of some in those professional types diminished his reputation. They didn't think he was, you know, he was all that great because honestly, if he was that good or a real apostle or that good of a minister and preacher, then he would get paid like everyone else. 
that was the, the mindset, right? Like the mindset of, hey, real pros, they get paid. Like in the NFL, you're never going to see a pro football player not getting paid exorbitant, stupid amounts of money. Right? In fact, I think that's what's essentially destroyed sports in America is the incomes. Um, I used to track with baseball. I've been an Atlanta Braves fan since probably 1990. Uh, since I was a, well, that wasn't a tadpole, but I was a bigger tadpole. I was a frog. Uh, but I've loved them ever since. And then that last, not the last, but probably a 10 strikes ago in the late 90s, that was it. I mean, when they were, you know, 50 million's not enough. I was like, oh, my goodness, all you do is catch a little ball. I know what that's like. I did it at Big Valley and pulled both hamstrings in the first play of the game. <laughs> I should have got 50 million for that pain. Uh, I've told that story to Cameron, and he makes me fun of me every time. Uh, but, you know, this is ridiculous. Why are they getting paid these exorbitant amounts of money? It's just sports for crying out loud. And I think some, you know, if you had a guy that was in professional sports not getting paid, he would probably viewed weird. If not, people would really like him because he's humble enough not to take the pay. And a similar thing was happening with Paul, although it was in the reverse. People were not all that, they did not admire him as much as maybe Cephas or Peter because Peter probably drew a pretty decent little salary as he went around, but Paul didn't do it. So they thought, eh, I don't know if he's all that great. If he was so great, he would get paid. And I would say, and, and this, of course, led to a lower view of him. And, but I will say this to intervene on Paul's behalf. The fact that he didn't take monetization did not make him less of an apostle. It didn't. But it did in the eyes of some, even at this church, in the Corinthian church, the church that he planted. Paul's refusal to accept monetization, it didn't make him less of an apostle. It just made him unique, unlike the others. And it made him, sadly, misunderstood. But don't get me wrong when I say this. I'm not attacking Peter. I think, from a human standpoint, pretty impressive guy. Strong, brave, bold. I mean, he was a sissy lala during the ministry of Jesus. Once he got the spirit on Pentecost, man, that guy changed. He was something else. He was a, he was a, he was a wrecking ball in a good way. That sermon that he preaches in Acts 2 is just mind-boggling. Like where you go from denying Jesus three times to that. That's the power of God. That is... That is God in the soul of man through the Holy Spirit, right? So he was an impressive apostle. He is thought of as that rock who gave the testimony that Christ's church would prevail against the gates of Hades, right? He's the rock. That testimony is the rock that the church would be built on, that it will prevail. And so nobody else holds that position with him. He was literally Jesus's kind of right-hand man. He was brave. He was bold. He was a, a powerful preacher. But like it says in 2 Corinthians 11.5, Paul talks about, quote-unquote, super apostles. If such a person existed, Paul was it. Paul was a super apostle. He was. In my opinion, he was. If there was such a thing, and I don't know if they had a cape and, you know, an SP on their, on their uniform, you know, and they flew around for Jesus, but, I mean, that's stupid, but what is a super apostle? Well, I don't think they really existed, but if there had been one, it would have been Paul why would I say that versus the other apostles? Because when you read the biblical account, Paul accomplished more than all the other apostles put together, right? His accomplishments 
in, in the book of Acts and, and as we see in the epistles illustrated, what other apostle has 11, 12, whatever epistles in the book? I mean, who planted all those churches, right? I mean, yeah, we're not supposed to compare or anything like that. I get it. But I'm just saying that for someone to think, because this someone that's under his ministry and was saved under his preaching, this is how dastardly this is, for someone to be in that kind of low position, to be ministered to by him and his preaching, to be saved under his ministry, to turn around later and think that he's less of an apostle, not recognizing his sacrifices, not recognizing his labor for the Lord, not recognizing his undying, unwavering, unshakable commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, for that to come from people that were spiritually born under his ministry, is not that not the greatest slap in the face? That the church itself, Paul was harassed, was persecuted, shipwrecked, beaten within an inch of, of his life or death. I mean, nobody besides Jesus suffered more as a man of God in the New Testament than him that I can think of. Everything that he went through, all that he did, and the response of some in his churches is you're really not, because he didn't take monetization, you're really not an apostle like the other guys. He had been hurt by persecutors, harmed, just tortured by them, and then by nature and rivers. And I mean, look at, he talks about all the things that he suffered for the Lord. But I don't think that anyone hurt him as badly as Christians. Seriously. This is something that we can do. This is something that a church can do to its pastor, to its elders, without even realizing it. This is something that we can do as regular parishioners to each other. I, I don't think that there's anything that hurts the soul of a Christian more. It's not outside persecution. We expect that. It's inside persecution. It's when we don't treat each other rightly. And, and in Paul's situation, Paul talks about how he had sleepless nights that were filled with worry and anxiety over the churches. And some of that was just because these churches were being attacked by Jews and other persecutors. But a lot of that was also coming from this internal strife and animosity that was going against this planter, this apostle. Nothing cuts us as Christians more than the words and actions of other Christians. Amen? It's a torturous, terrible thing that we can do to each other. I've done it. I've been doing it. And I'm ashamed. And I know that you've done it. It's just, it's just such a, a tragedy. We have to say to ourselves, why do we do this? What wells up inside of us to cause this? Is it an insecurity that I have that causes that? Is it a, a desire to defend myself or my position. You know, Paul is defending his position here, but not because of or for himself. It's for the point that he's going to make. But why do we do these things? Why do we inflict such harm on, on one another? I don't understand it. Why do we torture each other? Uh, I know that I'm looking forward to the day when the Lord comes back and that ends, right? You too? 
sometimes I just groan for the second coming of Christ. So, so all of these sorts of things and the internal struggles of the church. We don't even think about that. We think about, oh, when he comes back, he'll deal with unbelievers and the persecutors will be put down. He'll also deal with inside persecutors. He'll also finally set us completely right. A new mind, new, I mean, we get some of that when we go off into glory, but you get a new body and a new disposition, a new everything at the resurrection. And, and we don't even have that as a default to mistreat each other. Nobody in the kingdom of Christ that is to come, it is here, but when it comes and manifests itself here, all of that's going to be gone. We're not going to have to worry about our dynamics, you know, bro. We, we don't have to, it, it's just, it's just going to come naturally now because we have a full new nature, new body, new everything, new perspective. Even though we're being renewed now in the image of Christ, we still have the lingering flesh. So I really long for that because not so much as so that the world will turn its guns away from the church, but so that Christians on the inside will turn their guns away from each other. Finally, finally, we will get along at the level that we're intended to get along. There won't be any insecurity. There won't be any of that. We'll be fully satisfied in Christ, and that'll never change. And once that happens, once that's accomplished, I will only see my wife in absolute purity with never, I'll never suspect her. She'll never suspect me. Well, we won't even be married anymore because marriage isn't a thing of the kingdom. I hope I still know her. Hey, remember when we were married? Yeah, I'm trying to forget it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Right? We don't have to... Yeah, I've been delivered from that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yeah. But all of that will be gone, right? We won't even think like that anymore. All of that strife inside and it, it'll all be gone. I, I can't wait for that. Um, I think that just pondering Paul's accomplishments is pretty staggering. I mean, he, he said to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Well, let's, let's attempt to do that by planting churches and doing what he did. You know, the bar with Jesus is way up there, but the bar with Paul is a lot lower than Jesus. But I still don't think I can get to Paul's bar. Do you think you can? This guy was amazing. What's he saying here? I got rights too. I got rights too, just like you. Maybe they're a tad bit higher is what he's saying. I think besides Jesus... The Apostle Paul is probably the second person I really, really can't wait, wait to meet when, when I, by the grace of God and by the perseverance of God's Spirit, cross over into the next life when I enter through and say, hey, what's up, Simon Peter? Oh, do you want to stop and talk to me? No, I'm going to Paul. <laughs> Why not me? Well, I'll talk to you later. I'm going to that guy right there. He's like one that I really want to meet. Who wants to meet the Apostle Paul? Can you imagine I'm so stupid, I'd probably bow before him like I've seen an angel, and he'd be like, you got to be kidding me, right? Because I, I just admire him so much. I'd like to just shake his hand and say thanks, and I suspect that if that were, I don't think it's possible because that's not the realm for acknowledgement of individuals. It's the realm for acknowledgement of God. But if it were possible, what do you think Paul would do? Do you think he'd shake my hand and say thanks? No way. He would point me to the throne of grace and say, go over there and thank him. Because all along, it was Christ in me, right? That's what he would say. He would not, never would he steer me toward himself. He would steer me to Christ and say, go thank him. Galatians 2.20, it's Christ in me 
Colossians 2, 6 to 7. He'd say, go and thank him. So Paul, again, continuing to establish his credential and his level of rights. He has the right to do all the things of the other apostles, although he doesn't take God up on one of those rights when it comes to the monetization. Verses 8 to 10, he says, do I say these things on human authority? Am, am I just basing this on what I say, on my authority as even apostle and apostle or on the authority of the philosophers of our day or of any man? Am, do I say these things of human authority? And he says, okay, does not the law say the same? Does not the law say what I'm saying to you? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned here in that text? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Stop there. These verses seem to indicate that there was another type of thinker in this church there was another type of member in this church. There were not only those who wrestled with Paul's rejection of monetization and those who doubted his apostleship because he didn't get paid, because, you know, pros get paid. There was not only that type, but there was probably also the type that just flat out rejected the idea of paying any Christian minister anything, anytime. So you've got a couple types of thinkers here. Those who think that all of them should get paid, and if you don't, that's weird. And there's some that would think the opposite of that. They shouldn't get paid. Why would we pay Christian ministers? Why, why, would, we, why would we give them money in their bag? Why would we do anything quite like that? And sadly, I think there's, um, there's both types in churches even today, that two types of those thinkers there. They're, they're both types exist. Those who think their ministers should be paid and those who don't. Is this something that we've ever even thought about or pondered? Not really. It's not something that comes up, but thankful to Paul here. He's bringing it up through the inspiration of the Spirit. There are also those. Okay, so firstly, as a baseline, there's those who think they should get paid, those who don't. And then there are those who think their ministers should be really, really, really super, 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 like add a thousand supers to that, prosperous. They think their ministers should get paid ridiculous, exorbitant, super high incomes. Right? They, they think that they should get paid tons and tons of money. And, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, where does that exist? I haven't seen that. Well, I, not, to, not to pick on the Pentecostals, but in some of those charismatic churches, yeah, that's what it's all about. Some of those pastors, they, they, get paid, um, they get paid amounts of money that would make your head spin. I won't name names, I won't name churches, but I found out years ago from an insider, there's a pastor of a church in this community that gets paid $900,000 a year. Almost a million dollars plus all his expenses are paid. His house is paid for by the church. Hold on a second, let me back up. His houses, plural, are paid. His cars are paid. His clothing is paid. His servants that work at his houses are from the church, and he gets 900k on top of that. Now, I don't. I've never sought to um, authenticate those numbers. I was just told by somebody who was on leadership at the church. Do you think that that's an exorbitant amount of money? Because if not, I'm, I'm down. <laughs> Right? You know what I would end up doing? I would just end up putting like rims on my 
on my Explorer. <laughs> Look what I did. You got 900K and that's what you did? Right? All your lights are on on your panel. This thing just barely runs. Yeah, I know, but I got rings. And I got the little spinners, you know? Right? Yeah, no, I'm not suggesting that we would ever be like that, but that's an, that is an exorbitant amount of money, but it pales in comparison to others in certain circles. And I will name this one because it is in the headlines today. Hillsong is currently under investigation by the Australian government for money laundering and tax evasion. Just bear in mind that Hillsong songs are sang in almost every church in the world. They're even sang in remote churches in Africa, believe it or not. Somehow, the reach of that music is just, it's just unprecedented. It gets everywhere. But the fact that this particular organization or church, dare we say, is under laundering and tax evasion investigation, it just shouldn't come as any surprise when the former senior pastor, Brian Houston, is worth a net of $10 million. That makes 900000 look like a McDonald's employee, $10 million. Now, we're not even going to get into Osteen and others that their wealth makes Brian Houston look like a pauper. But in some circles, what's my point? Do I have a point? Yeah, I'm not just trying to sling hash. I think it's ridiculous and it's sad. Let's pray for them. Point being, there's some churches that have a really weird view of we should pay our guys a lot of money ridiculous amounts of money. So you have that. And then you have, uh, the, and there were some of those in, in the Corinthian church that felt like we should pay Cephas and those guys when they come around a ton of money. And then there were some in the Corinthian church and there are some in the church today who think that pastors should be borderline if not impoverished and should get paid very little if anything at all. So you really have two extremes, right? You have, let's pay him a ton or let's pay him nothing. You have those two perspectives, those two types of Christians in churches. The ones who don't want to pay him much or anything at all, they reason that, well, you know, since Jesus didn't get paid for his ministry, right, he didn't have a place to rest his head, he said, according to his own testimony, which makes him sound pretty physically poor, uh, Luke 9, 58, since Jesus didn't get paid and foxes and birds have nests and holes to sleep in, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head, he's broke as a joke, why would we then pay his ministers anything? If Jesus didn't get paid, why would we pay those who came after him to preach his gospel? Why would we pay them anything at all? And sadly, this too was an attitude in the Corinthian church. And what Paul does is he takes these Ebenezer Scrooges, these misers, straight to the scriptures, right? For it is written in the law of Moses. Now he's got their attention, ears are perking up. Whoa, what's he going to say? What did Moses say? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. This is Deuteronomy 25.4. And I want you to understand something. This is the law of Moses. That statement is law. It is a commandment. It is not a historical notation or something like that or a, a poem or a song from Psalms. It is a commandment. It is a law. And Paul actually quotes the same verse uh, when he wrote to Timothy and encouraged uh, the church at Ephesus, wherever Timothy was, to pay their ministers adequately 
1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. So this is a verse that Paul had used to quote about the, about the muzzling of an ox. He used it with the Corinthians. He used it probably with, I don't know if it's the Ephesians, but with wherever Timothy was headed. It's certainly in Timothy's epistle. In verses 9, 10 to B, Paul is saying this. This is my paraphrase. Do you think that this particular law or ordinance from God's law is only applicable to hard-working farm animals like oxen? Is that what God was striking at in Deuteronomy 25.4? Is that what he was focused on? This is what he's asking them. Is this what God was ultimately concerned with here? No. He was speaking for our sake and on behalf of those who minister for God. This law was written for us and for every faithful minister because those who plow and those who thresh for Christ should receive some of the crop. That's what he's saying. This was Paul's Old Testament metaphorical way of saying this. Christian ministers have the right to be paid by their churches. That's what he's saying, as plain as you can be. He's just using an Old Testament law and metaphor to illustrate it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I, as a Christian minister, have the right to be paid. Peter has the right to be paid. Apollos has the right to be paid. Barnabas has the right to be paid. Timothy, although young, has the right to be paid a fair wage. Don't pay him less because he's young. And that was a problem that Timothy had to deal with. He was a younger guy, and people just didn't respect him because he was a younger guy. He wasn't younger like those Mormon elders that come to your door that are like barely scratching 17. But he was a young man probably in his early 20s. Point being, Christian ministers who minister for Christ should be paid by the church. That's what he's saying. And as I said, since Paul was quoting from not anywhere else but from the law of Moses... This means that it is lawful for a church to pay its ministers and unlawful for it to refuse. Unless, I would say, unless, I would say unless it has little to no financial resources. Because often when churches first start, they don't have much resource. Or often when churches go through divine change. They don't have as much resource. This is a church that's 18 months old, old uh, Corinthian church. Ours is now 11 years. A Corinthian church, 18 months, probably not easy for it to pay its ministers. Although I would say Greco-Roman culture was very wealthy, especially from the selling of idols. <laughs> right? I sell idols so I can tithe. <laughs> What's an idol? Nothing. I don't know if I'd go that far though. Like, I would do that, uh, but it has no meaning. Now, I, I would say, like, here's a great example. There is, I did a little research. There is a very, very small and very precious and very cute with pictures, little Anglican. It's not angel lichen, by the way. Some people call it that. Anglican church, little, tiny, tiny, tiny Anglican church. It is in the Masiki village right on the very edge of the Serengeti. And by the way, the Serengeti is not a desert. It's a marshland. So it's, it's right on the edge of it. It's adorable. And, to, and to, I was looking at pictures, and it just, I just wanted to weep. 
you know, th that's the kind of church that it might be difficult for it to pay its minister, right? But then I'm thinking of like the widow's mite where you have a, you know, an illustration from Jesus where you have a poor widow who doesn't have really much means but still finds a way to tithe and worship to her God. You know, so, so what am I saying? What I'm saying is I think there's, there's always a way for Christians to be generous, even when they don't have much. But in that particular situation, it makes a lot less sense for the pastor to get, you know, a full-time salary or whatever. And I would just say that um, if that church or any church like that, uh, especially in that region, cannot really muster a salary or even a stipend for their pastor, give them some chickens. I'm dead serious. Give them a goat. Sometimes goats are worth more in those territories than anything money. It, you know, you're out in the Serengeti. There's no stores. You know, I just, I'm just taking my, I don't know what African coinage is called in that region, but I'm taking my Masiki coins over to the Walmart, and I couldn't get in because there was an elephant in front of it. They don't have Walmarts. They don't even have stores like we have. So sometimes monetary rewards are kind of useless in those communities, but it, chickens go a long ways. A goat goes a long ways, but point being is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.18, no matter what, even if the church is impoverished, as a rule of thumb, the laborer is worth his wage, right? He should get paid something. He should draw something. As he loves and ministers to the church, the church should reciprocate and try to meet his needs as best it can. That is something that Paul is saying. Paul is saying that I have the right to that, and so do all the other Christian ministers. Verses 11 and 12a, getting to the end here, he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Mm. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we him and Barnabas, even more? This is what he's saying. Again, he's not just declaring his own rights to receive things that others get or that he should be entitled to as an apostle and planter. He's also defending the idea of caring for the minister to the groups, you know, to the group in this church that didn't think the minister should get paid anything. And he's, he's just, he's simply telling them, you know, hey, if they have come in and preached the word of God and, and done, and, and, you know, and, and spiritual things have been done for them, from them for you or by them to you. Shouldn't you give them material things in, in return? That's what he's saying. I think verse 11 reveals another important principle. The Lord provides spiritual things for his people, right? Ultimately, it's the Lord's work to do that. For example, if we slide over to Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, we see at least seven spiritual blessings or spiritual things that God provides for his children from divine election all the way through to a heavenly inheritance. So Paul is talking about what God provides, but what he's really talking about is how God provides through the ministry of spiritual leaders. These spiritual things that God gives his children they are planted and sown in their lives through the preaching of the word, which comes through who? 
faithful Christian ministers. As they preach the whole counsel of God, one of my favorite verses, Acts 20, 27, what does God do is that faithful Christian minister preaches the word. God sows spiritual things in our hearts and this produces hope, this produces joy in us. Here's what he's striking at. God's children who are receiving spiritual things from God through Christian ministers, they are to respond with gratefulness and generosity by providing material things such as tithes and offerings. That's a reciprocating act of worship. God has done something unique and special and beautiful and sanctifying for us. And he has loved us first. And our response is to love him back by showing our gratefulness and our gratitude by being generous and by giving back to his cause. That's what tithes and offerings are. That's what material blessing is. We cheerfully present these gifts to God, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And then what does God do? Then God takes that resource and gives a portion of it to his Christian ministers. That's the whole cycle. Just as a portion of the sacrificed meat under the Mosaic law went to the Jewish ministers at the tabernacle and the temple, Leviticus 7.35. Did you know that every time an Israelite brought a goat or even dove or any kind of animal to be sacrificed to cover their sins, that once that animal was carved up and burned on the altar, a portion was given to Levitical, to the Levitical priests because the Levitical priests were not given an inheritance from the Lord like the land of Moab or something like that. Their inheritance was God himself. And so it was the duty of the people to bring their offerings and then God would take some of that offering to cover their sins and he would give the rest of that offering to the priests so they could put food on their tables. Tithing and taking care of your ministers, it's rooted all the way back in the Mosaic law in the Old Testament under the sacrificial system. It's been around forever. Really, this has to be shameful for those Corinthians in these churches or in this church that felt like, I don't think we have to give anything to our ministers. Well, shame on you for thinking that way. That's not the way that it should be. That is how the Old Testament priests put food on their tables. Paul calls this, this actually this idea of a portion going to the minister, it actually is a principle called double honor. You've heard that, right? The elder is worth or gets double honor, 1 Timothy 5.17. The Christian minister is worth double honor and he receives it when provisions are made by his church for him. That's what it means for him to receive double honor. Paul is asking the Corinthians that since he and Barnabas sowed spiritual things in this church through the word, through the gospel, shouldn't they be entitled to material things from this church? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is an unequivocal yes. Of course they should be entitled to these things. They're owed to these men. It's their right to be paid. In verse 12a, Paul reasons that since the Corinthians were known for supporting others like Apollos and Cephas or Peter, 1 Corinthians 1.12, and this is, that idea is repeated in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 22, since 
The church was known for taking care of some of those Christian ministers. He had even more claim on their support since he was really, in a way, their apostle and their church planter. That's what he's arguing for here. But I want you to bear in mind, think of it like this. Think of the text like this, and we're, we're done. The main thrust of this first section, verses 1 to 12a, is the main idea here is that Paul had great rights as a Christian, great rights as an apostle, rights as a preacher, rights as the planter of the Corinthian church. That's what he's saying. You say as a Christian, you have rights to eat meat, sacrificed idols or whatever. Great, that's fine. I agree. Don't cause anyone to stumble with it is what he said in chapter 8. But now he's saying, I as this, this, and this, I have great rights as well. I have even more rights than you. Paul was worthy of a right that the rest of those Corinthians were not, double honor, because they were not Christian ministers. Only Christian ministers are worthy of that right. And so his rights were even greater to a degree than the average believer because of double honor and because of his position and work. Uh, that, that, is, that is the point of the first section. And, and just, to, just to further illustrate his high position and his rights, Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, the apostles will sit on thrones and rule over the tribes of Israel. There is much discussion as to what these thrones will be like and what the tribes of Israel are. Are they the original 12? Are they all Christians for all time? There's great eschatological debate on that. We won't get into that. But Jesus says very clearly to his disciples, this is your position in the future. And you need to understand that for these apostles, this is a higher seating arrangement than for non-apostles. Okay? We, it says in Ephesians 2.6, are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It's like we're already there with him because we will be seated with him once we get there. But we are not seated like the apostles are. We share in the throne of Christ in a sense, but it is a milder sense of the meaning. The apostles are at another level. Right? They receive, they receive this particular seating arrangement, which is a particular right and a particular honor. Matthias and Paul included. Not just the original 12. In fact, one of the original 12 hanged himself. He was the son of perdition. Point being thus far, Paul had rights. But that's not the main point of chapter 9. And you'll have to wait till next Sunday to find out what it is. Okay? Little cliffhanger. Actually, you can just read ahead and figure it out. <laughs> no, don't do it. Save it. Savor the moment. Closing, I don't have any final, like, exhortations for you. You know, usually there's some kind of a fancy application, some kind of exhortation. I don't have anything like that for you, but what I do have for you is just nothing but just gratitude. Just gratitude. Back in verses 8 to 10, Paul listed no, you know, when he was describing how the ox should get, you know, the feed and, and all of that. Um, he didn't 
and he's, of course, the parallel is to the Christian minister, but he didn't list any particular percentages. There's no wages mentioned there. There's no salary amounts. Wouldn't that have been handy? A third-year pastor should get paid this. A fourth-year, I mean, that would have been nice, but he didn't do that. The basic idea there is that the ox's needs are met, and when the ox's needs are met, this powerful beast can focus on plowing for its owner. If you have a hungry ox, it's not going to do its job. It's going to keep dragging you and all that ancient equipment over to the grass patch. I don't want you to go over here. If you feed the ox, it'll stick to the task. Likewise, if the minister's needs are met, he can focus on preaching the word. Why? To equip, 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 equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.12. Amen? Churches are not to, just listen, churches are not to aim for prosperity or poverty. They should simply take care of their minister's needs by meeting his needs, by assessing what his needs are and meeting those needs. Not in excess, not in underneath. Just take care of his needs. Because if it doesn't take care of his needs, he cannot have more of a sole focus on what he should be doing, and that's the word, and ministering the word. If he has to work multiple jobs and do ministry, then he has to worry about feeding his family. And like I said, there's a reason for that sometimes when a church is small or <laughs> near the Serengeti. And I would just simply say uh, the churches should not focus on this high income or low income. It should just take care of its minister's needs like RHC does for me and my family. Mm. This small but potent body of sacrificial brothers and sisters, you guys model these principles that Paul has talked about. You model them. We don't take pride in ourselves. We should be thankful to the Lord that he has guided you and directed you in this way. I certainly am. You have modeled this. Did you know that these first 12 verses are actually used by lots and lots of people to show how churches should tithe and, you know, ministers should be paid? This text is textbook for that kind of message. That's not the point today, really. Paul's just talking about who he is so he can get to the next step. But... I just want to say to you that you have modeled this year after year. Thank you. It's, it's not said enough from up here. Thank you. If ever. No, don't thank me. Mm-mm. No, it's not said enough. It's not said enough. I, I don't have thoughts that you're, you know, worried about being unappreciated because you know that that's, if that's your heart, then that's not a heart of worship. You don't give to me. You give to the Lord. And the Lord takes from what you graciously and generously give. And he takes a portion of that and keeps the heat on. And he takes a portion of that and... Ha provides for us a nice space, a safe space in, 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 in decent chairs. Of course, Jared came up with those. But he worked through Jared to come up with those. 
he, he works through what you give to meet all of the needs here, even the, the monetary needs of this wretch. And uh, this last week, as I was uh, reflecting on that, and uh, just thinking about how I've been acting. And, and maybe some of you have seen it, maybe some of you haven't, but I've had real struggles. I don't want to make this about me, but I just want to say that sometimes when you stop to count your blessings, it's overwhelming in light of how dastardly you can be. And to think of how I've spoken to some of you and acted and behaved and I've been running out of patience for a while now and these sorts of things just hasn't been good, but um, I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks for enduring um, my hard, sometimes I'm a hard man, thanks for enduring that and uh, being gracious, uh, but most of all, Thanks for being generous <laughs> to the Lord. Uh, because, uh, because of how God has worked through you, I can feed my family and have decent clothes. And I could use a new car, but um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I love you so much and so, so thankful for you. I am. That's the application. 